right, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading through verse 13. Please pay attention to God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, help us to see in your word today the significance of these events on the day of Pentecost. God, what it meant for them then, even as the question was asked, what does this mean? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us here today? God, speak through your word. May you be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, second half of chapter 1. I titled that message, Pentecost's Preparatory Prayers. Nice little alliteration there. We saw the disciples obeying Jesus' command to wait for the promise of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit by whom they would be baptized. They prayed and they waited They prayed as they cast lots, and the Lord chose Matthias to replace Judas, symbolizing the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. We talked about the significance of that. And now that all that preparation has been made, we find ourselves at the day of Pentecost, this yearly celebration that took place 50 days after the Passover. It's kind of comparable to our Thanksgiving day. It was a gathering together to give thanks to God for the abundant harvest for that year. Now, we're going to be looking this week and next at the events of this particular Pentecost day, and I'm going to stick with the alliteration from last week with the P's with this week's sermon title, and that is Pentecost, peculiar, perplexing, and paradigmatic. That's our $50 word for today, paradigmatic. What do I mean that this Pentecost was peculiar, and why does it matter for us? 
let's look first at verses one through four as we see what happened. Now, remember that the previous account occurred sometime during the 10 days in between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost. There was great anticipation. 120 disciples were praying and waiting for the promise. The day of Pentecost then is here in chapter 2. They're all together in one place, as we see in verse 1. And verses 2 and 3 give some very vivid imagery of what takes place next. There came suddenly from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So this sound comes like a mighty rushing wind. It's audible. They actually hear something, and the house is filled. We're going to see that word filled used several times throughout this passage. It's significant. Divided tongues of fire then appear and rest on them. So there is a visual element. So we have an audible audio element and a visual element in what is happening here. And these symbols of wind and fire are very significant. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery that comes to mind here and probably did come to mind for them either during or shortly after this event. Now, in both Old Testament Hebrew and in New Testament Greek, the word for spirit or wind or breath is the same word in both languages, and it's used interchangeably. So as we go to translate the the text, we have to understand the context of of what is trying to be communicated. I'll give you a few examples. In Hebrew, the word, very fun word to say is ruach. You got to get that kind of in there, okay, kind of clearing your throat. So ruach is the Hebrew word, and we see it in Genesis 1-2. It says the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit, the ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, that's one place where we see that. Another one, which is a very common, uh, very well-known passage in the Old Testament, is, is, is in Ezekiel chapter 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel prophesied to the bones, and then these bones start to come together, and flesh appears on them. And then it says, but there was no ruach, there was no breath, there was no spirit in them. It it translates into English as breath here. And it says, the Lord said to him, prophesy to the ruach, prophesy, son of man, and say to the ruach, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O ruach, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the ruach, the breath, came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. A few verses later, then, the significance of this event is explained as the Lord says to his people Israel through Ezekiel, and I will put my ruach, here it's translated spirit, I will put my spirit within you. So he's saying this vision that you saw of these bones coming to life and flesh coming on them, and air being breathed into their lungs. This is really about what God is going to do for his people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So this Old Testament imagery here of of wind and breath and spirit is, is very important. 
In the New Testament, the Greek word is panuma. It's kind of weird. It's got a P and an N. Uh, P-N-E-U-M-A. It's where we get our English word pneumatic, air-powered, okay? Pneuma. In John chapter 3, after Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, he explains it like this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, panuma, the, the actual wind, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the panuma spirit, okay? So we, if we just look at that and say, it's the same word, right? But clearly Jesus is making a correlation between the wind that we hear, but don't see and the spirit that we don't see, but we see his effects, right? So the creation of the world and our physical and our spiritual lives is a powerful work of the wind or the spirit of God. Fire is also significant here. Simon Kistemacher, one commentator, points to three Old Testament scenes where we see the holiness, the judgment, and the grace of God in fire. He says that we see the holiness of God when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. We see the judgment of God when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel when fire came down and burned up the offering. We see the grace of God when Elijah is taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So holiness, judgment, and grace all seen in this imagery of fire. We also see the people of Israel being led in the wilderness at night by a pillar of fire. So there is another kind of leading element. Now, the point in sharing all this is that this imagery would not have been lost on those gathered in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. The wind and the fire were reminders of God's presence with his people. His power is seen in the wind and his cleansing purity is seen in the fire. And now we get to the, into the particular part of, or the, the peculiar part of Pentecost in verse 4. It's safe to assume from the context here that the all who are listed, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and who begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, it wasn't just the 12 apostles here, but it's the 120 who were most likely listed there in verse 1. It says they were all together in one place going back to the end of, of chapter 1. This massive number of people involved likely leads to the response that we're going to see from the multitude in the following verses of, of them being perplexed. There's 120 people speaking in all these different languages all at the same time. And the peculiar thing here, which is a unique and unrepeatable miracle, is not that the people get filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not what is unique. We're going to see this happen multiple times throughout the book of Acts. But this is the one time, the only time, that we're going to see people speaking in actual existing human languages for the purpose of confirming the promises of God through evangelism. We see that at the end. If you look at verse 11, it says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That is what they were doing. And this is the only time we see this speaking in other languages for that express purpose. So this is a peculiar event. And we will come back a little bit later to how this Pentecost day was peculiar when we talk about how it was also paradigmatic. 
But first, let's look at how it was perplexing in verses 5 through 13. First, Luke clues us in on what was happening at that time. So it appears that devout Jews had, at some point, returned to Jerusalem to live there. They had returned from every nation under heaven. Now, we have to understand what this means here in this context. When it says every nation under heaven, it means all of the known world at that time. This obviously doesn't mean that people traveled from the Amazon jungles in Brazil. It doesn't mean that Native Americans came from North America and were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It's just saying all the known world was those who were gathered there on that day of Pentecost. Speaking about Jews who had been dispersed over the known world throughout this, it's speaking about Jews who had been dispersed over the known world again throughout the Babylonian exile, but they had now returned to Jerusalem. We also see this in the list of the locations listed in verses 9 through 11, and that there are also visitors from Jerusalem and proselytes, which means Gentile converts to Judaism. Uh, so this is a very eclectic collection of people who spoke their own native languages. We see that in verse 8, as they say, how is, that, is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So they had their own native languages. They had come from many different places. So what is perplexing about this then? We see it in verses 6 through 8. It says, At this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They're, be they're bewildered because they heard these people speaking in their own language. They're amazed and astonished because the speakers are Galileans. This is probably a little bit of a dig. It's probably saying, here are these backwoods, uneducated Galileans. How on earth? These guys didn't go to school, right? They didn't go to the, the language university and learn all of these languages. What is going on here? I think it's a little bit hard to relate to this scene because of the rapid globalization in our day. Uh, when we lived in China, I always explained to people that one of the major differences between living in China and living in America is that this bewilderment or amazement about seeing a foreigner speaking in your language. When Chinese people saw a white guy speaking Chinese with a, a fair level of proficiency, they were blown away. They were like, wait, how do you know my language, right? But I always told them, if you come to America, you can't look at someone and guess whether or not they are American based on how they look. Now, there was certainly a time in history when the English language being spoken by non-white people who weren't from Europe would have been strange, right? Like, how do you know this language? But today, seeing people from all parts of the world, Africa, Asia, uh, the Middle East, in America speaking English is, we don't even think twice about it, right? There's no like, well, that's odd. Like, how does that person know English? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing the ability for the English language to be a worldwide language to the day of Pentecost. That's not the point exactly. 
But there is a sense in which the crossing of language barriers and the bringing together of people for the purpose of the gospel going forward is a result of what happened at Pentecost. I think we need to at least acknowledge there is something there that God has done throughout human history that is unique, that is related to Pentecost. And this is really good news because it is the grace and mercy of God to reverse the curse of another perplexing phenomenon in history that related to multiple languages. We saw that in our Old Testament reading earlier in the service. Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, where the whole earth had one language. And they tried to make a name for themselves. They tried to preserve themselves by building a city and a tower. And the Lord's response to that was to confuse their languages so that they would not understand one another's speech. And then he dispersed them over the face of the world. Speaking of the difference between Babel and Pentecost, John Stott says, At Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the mighty works of God being declared in these many languages is, as it were, as it were a reversal of the Tower of Babel event. Confusion of the languages now becomes clarity. The amazement and perplexity that we see in verse 12 isn't regarding what is being spoken, but rather, what does this mean? What's going on here? We've never seen anything like this. That was the response, the first response. There's another response seen in verse 13. Others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. These guys aren't speaking actual languages. They're they're just drunk. They're just babbling, right? We'll see that a little bit more next week. But this is instructive, especially since this relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. There will be different responses to the works of God depending on how the Holy Spirit is at work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So see this Ability to respond and say certain things about Jesus is only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Those saying that the disciples are drunk are like those who say Jesus is accursed because they are not speaking in the Spirit of God. We'll look at that again more next week as we look at Peter's sermon. But for now, one takeaway for us might be to stand in awe of the fact that we are sitting here 2,000 years later that we are reading and we are hearing God's word preached in English. Not simply as a result of globalization, not as a a result of just the, the natural spread of languages, but because God graciously reversed the curse of Babel at the day of Pentecost, and he caused the gospel to go forth to the nations. We are recipients today of that massive blessing. And that's a good segue then to our final point, that Pentecost is paradigmatic. This might be, I did explain it a little bit earlier, but it might be a a bit of an unfamiliar word or a concept. So what are paradigms? 
It's not 20 cents in your pocket. It's my dad. It's my dad joke for the day. That was for you, Bishop. My dad joke. A paradigm is a pattern or a framework. It's a way that we see or the way that we think about or the way we understand the world. You might hear people talk about, oh, I had a paradigm shift, right? I changed the way I was thinking about things. If you've gone from being not in Christ and thinking about the world a certain way to being in Christ and having the spirit of God change your thinking, you had a paradigm shift, right? You now see the world differently. So I'm arguing that Pentecost is both peculiar and paradigmatic. That's basically the same thing that I pointed out in the first sermon in this series a few weeks back when I quoted from Patrick Schreiner's book on Acts, The Mission of the Triune God. If you weren't here for that or you want a refresher, since we'll be emphasizing this a lot in this series, he said that Acts is transitional and programmatic. He said, as a transitional book, Acts recounts non-repeatable events that establish the community of faith. So in other words, it's peculiar, non-repeatable, it's transitional. But he says, it's also programmatic in that it provides guidance for the church in every age, or we could say it's paradigmatic. So Pentecost is really a microcosm of the whole book of Acts in this sense. There's something unique about it, but there's also something that we can learn from. There's something, um, even though it's not repeatable, it's, it's something that impacts the way that we think about things and the way we, we understand them. So let's unpack this a little bit and examine why it's significant for us today. There's a book I would highly recommend for you. We're going to be in Acts for a long time, um, so you have plenty of time to read this book. It's a book in a really good series. It's an InterVarsity Press series, uh, Contours of Christian Theology. This is a book called The Holy Spirit. Uh, by Sinclair Ferguson. If you've never read anything from Sinclair Ferguson, he's a phenomenal writer. Uh, he's also a, a very gifted speaker. Most people are either really good writers and terrible speakers or other way around. He is one of those guys who is very gifted in writing and speaking. Uh, this book is gold. So I would encourage you to look that up, The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. Um, he covers the person and the work of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, a lot of things in there related to the book of Acts. If you have questions about like how all these things line up and then the, the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be covering them as we go throughout Acts. But if you're wanting a little bit of like a deeper dive, and, and this is written at a, at a popular level, it's not overly like technical with Greek words and the Hebrew and Greek words. So it's very accessible. Uh, again, I would recommend that. But uh, chapter four in the book is called Pentecost Today? Question mark. Uh, so the entire chapter is about the day of Pentecost. And he asks these questions. He says, which, if any, elements of Pentecost are once for all, which the way he puts it, so peculiar, and which elements can be viewed as repeatable and even normative in the experience of the church, paradigmatic. So again, there's a lot of different language we can use. I just, I'm trying to help us see there's, there's these kind of two ways of thinking about this. So I said we'd address how Pentecost was peculiar. Ferguson says that we should no more anticipate a personal Pentecost, saying that we're going to have this second experience, of this, this second blessing of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be filled and start speaking in tongues. He's, he's saying we should no more anticipate a personal Pentecost 
then we will experience a personal Jordan, wilderness, Gethsemane, or Golgotha. So he's talking about the people of Israel in, in the crossing the Jordan or being in the wilderness. We're not going to experience that. We're not going to experience Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane or dying on the cross at Golgotha. Those were one-time events. He says, while such language of personal Pentecost has often been popularly employed, it is theologically misleading. Pentecost itself is no more repeatable than is the crucifixion or the empty tomb or the ascension. But just because it's not repeatable doesn't mean it doesn't impact how we live today. Ferguson's example of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension are perfect examples. Jesus can't die and rise and ascend again. But the fact that he has very much impacts the way that we live and as those who are united with him in these things. Through faith in him, we are crucified with him, Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. We are resurrected with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places, places Ephesians chapter 2. Those are ongoing realities for us, but they're unrepeatable events. So we don't need Pentecost 2.0 any more than we need Calvary 2.0 or Easter 2.0. What we do need is to continue to do what the church has been called and equipped to do since the day of Pentecost. To witness about the wonderful works of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to a lost and dying world. Ferguson says the inaugural outpouring of the Spirit creates ripples throughout the world as the Spirit continues to come in power. Pentecost is the epicenter, but the earthquake gives forth further aftershocks, and those rumbles continue throughout the ages. Pentecost itself is not repeated. But a theology of the Spirit, which does not give rise to prayer for his coming in power, would not be a theology of Ruach. Let me repeat that again. So he says, Pentecost is not repeated. Is not repeated. But he says, a theology of the Spirit which did not give rise to prayer for his coming in power would not be a theology of Ruach. How can we not pray for the coming of the Spirit in power when we are constantly reminded that all is not right with the world? When we see the ravages of sin in our world and in our lives, when wars and conflicts rage with seemingly no end in sight, when corruption and greed push people further into poverty, when death claims our family and friends. And, then we, and though we know that all these things, through all these things, we have hope in Christ, which is a true hope. It doesn't just make the grief and the pain disappear. Pentecost is not repeatable, but we ought to long to see a genuine move of the Spirit of God in our day, where people confess the name of Jesus where they repent of their sins, where they are baptized, where they receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to see next week what this looked like in Peter's sermon in the next part of chapter 2. But we don't have to wait until then to be reminded of the one who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, who was raised up by God and loosed from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it in christ this too is our hope 
we can be raised up and loosed from the pangs of death because it is not possible to be held by it. Death is swallowed up in victory. And we can confidently say in the face of death, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done. That you have reversed the curse of Babel when people were spread out, dispersed, languages confused because of their pride and their sin. But God, you fulfilled your promises to bring people together under the gospel, to bring the nations together to hear in their own languages the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we think about the many missionaries who are laboring across the world, translating the Bible into other languages so that people can read your word, hear your word preached in their native tongues. We thank you for the work that you have done to break down barriers between Jew and Gentile through the cross of Christ. Thank you for the powerful coming of your spirit on the day of Pentecost that gave us this new paradigm for missions and evangelism, for going out into the world and declaring to people in their own tongues what is the truth of the gospel, which again, we'll see more next week. God, would you stir our hearts to be a people who pray, who pray for the coming of the spirit and power in our day, not in anticipation of an exact repeat of the day of Pentecost, but that lost sinners would be saved, that they would turn to Christ. God, breathe life. Breathe your spirit into those who are dead in sin. God, breathe life and your spirit afresh into those of us who, who know you, but who are maybe complacent right now in our faith. God, give us opportunities to speak as your messengers, to speak boldly to a lost and dying world. Father, bring honor and glory to your name in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.